Today we have Michelle Miller-Fisher and Amber Winnick on the show, the authors of the brilliant, beautiful book, Designing Motherhood. We really love these two women, their gift of a book, and we know you will too. Like a sparrow building shelter with branches for its young, my mother built a nest with love for her little ones. My grandfather told her, doesn't matter what you have, the only thing you need for life is each other's helping hands. Never Yeah. Hello, everybody. This is Jackie. And this is Nicole. And welcome to Never the Empty Nest. And today we, I, am uber excited because we have two very special people, very important, and I have discovered them. Uh, and they, they are Michelle Miller Fisher, I hope I am saying that right, and Amber Winnick. And uh, Vanessa, who's usually here with us, has abandoned us because she's at the Latin Grammys. Can you believe that? Leaving us for the Latin Grammys because she got some invitation. But Amazing. So I'm a little nervous because she's usually the one that starts everything. And uh, so bear with me. And so we're going to start. We usually start by just... Um, unpacking a little bit, you know, what we went through today. Nikki, how was your day today? My day is like every day of being a, a mom of a four and six-year-old and now a puppy of four months old who is like a third. I always said like two is more than enough. I'm done. No third baby. And I legit haven't third child. <laughs> so it's, um, I, I, everyone that listens to this podcast is like, I, we get it lady. Cause I'm constantly saying how overwhelmed we are, but it's really overwhelming. I mean, we knew it was going to be a lot, but it's a lot. So now she, I just like had a busy day of trying to contact the trainer that was recommended for us. We're like, she needs training. Cause she's wild. And she like is barking and biting and jumping on us and like out of control and like does these crazy movements on the couch and she's peeing on the couch. It's, it's a nightmare. And I just finished recording my EP. So I'm just trying to get all that, you know, copyrights and photos. And so it's been crazy, but it's all good things. It's just, it, it's been hectic. So I just, I just poured myself a little bit of vino because mommy needs it right now. Well, my day was, um, boring. I was telling Michelle, <laughs> um, we did a little visit before everybody else joined us that uh, it was torrential rain in in Miami today. And um, I had to go to a four o'clock appointment that I was so tempted not to go, but I went. I did it. I went. Uh, because it was the type of day to stay home, even if you're working, reading, whatever, but no, I had to leave. And so that was that was all. That was my day today. And what about you, Michelle and Amber? How was your day? Amber, do you want to go first? Go for it, Michelle. My my day was less uh, exciting than yours, probably. 
Um, I So I'm based in Providence um, and I went into work today. I, I go into the museum. I work at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. And so I went in this morning. I had a lot of meetings today. A really nice studio visit. I went to go visit um, a shoemaker, actually. So I, I do a lot of work with craft and design and material culture. And this amazing shoemaker learned their trade here on the East Coast, but they make Western boots. And that was the only person, they went through RISD actually as an architect, but wanted to learn shoemaking and could only find one person anywhere near them. And he was a apparently a very taciturn, but very interesting Western boot maker. So about 10 years ago, 20, 15 years ago, she learned how to um, make boots. So she has this shed in the back of her garden called a 10 footer, which is what um, in the late 19th century shoemakers would have had in this area of the world. And so she's recreated that in her backyard, which is amazing. Um, and in where in Boston, which is where I work around that area was a massive area of shoe manufacturer. So we have the headquarters of New Balance, of Adidas, and of Converse. So it's a really big place um, where uh, shoe uppers and vulcanized rubber through Goodyear kind of came together. And um, <laughs> I did some more meetings and then I got uh, the train home and, and here I am. That is so cool. Wow. That is it was really fascinating. Um, but yeah, so there's a lot of, uh, we, the museum was actually on strike yesterday. So we did <gasps> not, we could not go into the museum. We all were on strike because, well, we can get into that if we need to at some yes. point. But anyway, we didn't go into work yesterday. And so it was a lot of also catching up today. Wow. How about you, Amber? Oh, man. Well, uh, as I said, uh, I think before we started recording, I have a two-month-old. I also have a four-year-old and an eight-year-old. So I am living that three-child thing. And at the moment, I'm on some kind of maternity leave, although it seems like a bit fuzzy right now as I'm kind of rolling things back in and trying to... My husband went back to work, so I'm kind of manning more around um, the management of everything. So yeah, it was a, a very child-centric day, um, which was lovely, actually. My youngest was trying to roll over, which is so exciting to see. So I mean, there was a lot of just kind of like watching and observing of that. And my four-year-old came back with the cutest songs from her little nature play group. And, you know, I made some sandwiches and did a lot of chores and errands around that as well. So that was my day. I love it. Wait, <gasps> she rolled over at, or he or she, sorry, you're two months. It's a he. He's okay. not rolling over. But, you know, it's like that beginning sort of like yeah. going to the yeah. side and kind of finding his muscles and really kind of understanding, oh, I have control of my body. I can turn and bring my hands together. And I just, you know, now that I'm on my third, I'm just relishing every mm -hmm. one of these new um milestone moments even though that's not really a milestone but um it's just it's so fun to watch them put it all together I know I mean that's um 
now you get to enjoy it, right? I mean, I have heard like, well, you already know there's no surprises. When you're at your third, you're like, it's fine. It's, you know, but it, it's a lot. I mean, but people say, well, you're, you've already been there, done that. So you really kind of are more relaxed and you get to enjoy certain things instead of like pulling your hairs out and having meltdowns. I had like many meltdowns with my first newborn, but <laughs> um, that's amazing that they're already, it is a beautiful thing though, um, to see them just start to develop so early. It's just an insane thing to to yeah. watch. It's like magical and and strange and beautiful and amazing. Yeah, they're full people. Yeah. Well, that is absolutely great. I know that that um, I only had two, <laughs> but then I had grandchildren and have grandchildren, and you get to you know I guess the more children you are around, the more relaxed you get and the less tense you are. So I figure that this little one. Amber, you're really going to enjoy him in a different way. Uh, yeah, it feels so that way. Enjoy it. Enjoy Thank it. Thank you. Amber. So welcome, Amber and Michelle. We're very, I was telling Michelle that I personally am a little nervous because you guys are like rock stars and that I am so, we are uh, so excited that you said yes to our little podcast. This is a very important subject that uh, I think that we're just going to start to explore the way the, you know, in, in your, the way that you've highlighted this and that you've focused. Uh, it's, it's really amazing. Uh, you guys are great. You're authors, you're curators, you're what design historians. Is that what it is? It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Before you tell us a little bit about yourselves so that our listeners and ourselves can know more about you. I just want to read one paragraph in the book. I'm reading the book. This book is packed. So we're going to start unpacking it a little bit in this podcast. And we may have to come back another day, another time, because it's, uh, it's, uh, I was looking at the book and I said, first of all, it's beautiful. Vanessa's right. And this paragraph says a lot of where they're coming from. And it's, it's, it's very profound. It's intense. It's joyful. Um, and it says, we advocate for a wide range of things, but that's what motherhood is. The name of the book is Designing Motherhood. Motherhood is housing. It is food security. It's public education. It's healthcare systems. It's public transportation. We're trying to make sure that we live under that reproductive justice framework and always center it back on mom and baby. This means policymaking for any number of issues. So when I read that, I said, wow, it, it really is sort of like an introduction to the book. For me, it was. And I just, and I read that, I don't know how many times, and I went back and I went back and forth and it really opened my awareness until I started reading this book um, that talks about our period and having our, you know, wellness checkup and the speculum, is that how, how we call it? And uh, until I read this book now, I always thought, oh, I am so tense. I am so nervous. The reason that this is so uncomfortable is because it's me. Hello. After reading what you guys are saying is who designed this? Especially I'm 65. So you can imagine, go back when uh, I started having this experience. So that kind of stuff, uh, nobody talks about, nobody goes 
into the depth that you two have gone in. And uh, this is really, really marvelous. So now tell us a little bit about yourselves, what you do, what you like, and how you got to write this fabulous book. Absolutely. Amber, you, you go first. I am a design historian and writer. I am also uh, centrally um, a mother, although, you know, um, Michelle and I come from different places when it comes to our backgrounds there. Michelle doesn't have children, and I do, and we're both design historians, and um yeah, we really came together um, over this conversation about design for the reproductive arc. Um, we met a few years ago. Was it 2015, Michelle? Yes. Yeah, at a baby shower, coincidentally, and really found this common ground as design historians wanting to talk about these kinds of objects that don't get much airtime in museums or the institutions that we were studying in or visiting all of these years. So we started this project and life has really happened around it. We started in 2017, right as I was having my second daughter, and now I have the three, and we've both moved house and um, seen all kinds of life and job changes throughout that. I think, crucially, I am an independent writer and design historian, and Michelle is a curator employed in museums. I'll let her talk more about that. But I think it's both of our backgrounds, both in terms of that employment piece, but also in terms of our trajectory with our own reproductive situations that has really helped us to make this a really strong project and book. Yeah, as Amber said, I've, I've worked in lots of different museums. Um, I came to the States about 15 years ago to work at the Guggenheim Museum in New York. And then I went on to work at the Metropolitan Museum um, and then MoMA. And then I came to Philadelphia and worked at the Philadelphia Museum for, of Art for a while. And now I'm at, now I'm at the MFA in Boston. And I, I don't have children. I was interested in this topic really through watching my own mom, who was an amazing, amazing woman. Um, she left school at 15, so she did not get the chance to have the education that I had. I went to school in Scotland where it's free to, for anybody to go to university. And so it was a huge thing for the first in my family to go past high school. I'm now finishing my fourth degree and I will have a, a PhD by the end of it. So it's an unusual, but very, well, it's less unusual actually at home because you can afford that education. Um, you, you can access it. But when I came into my working life, especially in a highly competitive field, it's really difficult to get a job as a curator in a museum. I looked around me and many of the folks who were in that space who were women, especially women of the generation above me, did not have children. Um, it was an either or situation for them. You could either have a kid or you could have a career, but you really could not have both. And I really wanted to have a career because I'd watched my mom go through a divorce, through domestic violence. She was not able to control her own career in the way that gave her financial and personal autonomy in the end. And so my sister and brother and I, and my mom, very tight. Um, when Amber had her second baby, that was the year my mom passed actually. And so for me, motherhood was a very different thing that year. But I think through our shared experiences, we really have 
being able to create a project that has many different angles to it. We have lots of different contributors to the book. We wanted to make sure that it was a really sort of polyphonic understanding of what the reproductive arc can be, which, uh, you know, maybe you do have a child, maybe you don't, maybe they come from your, your uterus, maybe it doesn't. Your family can be made up of lots of different people in lots of different ways. And we didn't really, as Amber said, we didn't hear those stories being told in places that we visited or worked in or, or were learning or were teaching in. And we wanted that to be different. Thank you both so very much. Wow. It's so exciting. And Michelle knows why, because I told her briefly, she asked, what do I do? And I said, well, how I'll tell you how I make my money. And that's in property management, but that's, you know, I'm 65 and I'm still trying to find what you ladies have found, which is this amazing project, besides all this other stuff that you do, right? I'm so glad that Vane pushed me to start this little baby podcast. And I say baby because we are infants at this, and I am more than anybody, but I still have to go back to school. I mean, I, I never got my bachelor's. I went to school three years, and then I had Vane, and so I said, that's okay. I had Vane. I said, I'll go back to school in three months. I only have one more year and my mom was going to help me. And then I was telling Michelle what, then I realized, wait, she's going to raise Vanessa and I don't want that. You know, I have all this that I want to do with her. And then Nikki came along, Nikki's an IUD baby. And so I need to go back to school, right? And finish my thing. And you guys have been an inspiration here. So I, I appreciate that. And so now tell us, you told us, Michelle, a little bit about your nest and how this is my second marriage. So I know, I so understand your mom uh, because I too came from an abusive relationship from before. So I, I know what that's like. So how was your nest? And, and how do you think, both of you, how do you think that the nest where you grew up in had an influence on what you're doing today? So we grew up in a, well, for the first decade of my life in a very, very violent situation. My mom was deaf by the time she left my father. And so um, it went from a, a place that wasn't, I have no real memories that I keep of that part of my life, but we moved when I was, uh, my father left us and I was nine. And so we moved to a place in Scotland that was idyllic. It was uh, you know, my mom didn't have a lot of money. Um, it wasn't great financially, although we all had jobs as teenagers and contributed to our family. So we built the nest together, actually, as a team of four people. We had a lot of autonomy as children because we were co-equal in some ways in terms of creating our home. But we had this incredibly central figure in our lives. Our mom was just fantastic at many things, but she was a great mother. Um, she did lots of things really great, but I think the, the one thing that she did do from right when we were tiny, right the way through to our last day, we were the center of her universe. We were absolutely, you know, there was a total unconditional love, which is just the best. You know, she never used to say you're the best in the world at what you do, or I mean, she didn't really know what I did, but she was incredible at just, we never, ever, ever went to a day, let alone really an hour sometimes without being told that we were loved. I think that was so important. Um, it really is something that I practice now at home. My husband comes from a very Walshby family in Connecticut where <laughs> 
he did not. He used to tell his parents or his sister out loud, you know, I love you. Good night. I love you. Hello. I love you. No touching. And we were very opposite as a family at home where it was just all of that all of the time. And so our nest here is really built on an absolute and unshakable demonstration in, in very, very clear terms all of the time of how important that sense of unconditional love is. And I think you can get by with a very little else as long as you have that. You made me cry because, again, the abuse that I went through was different. It was psychological, emotional, and verbal. Which can be as hard. It can really uh, make you feel horribly trapped. I was a different person then. I created a nest inside that reality. I don't even like to call it a nest, but let's call it the bigger nest. And so it was the girls and me. When you were talking now about your mom and the, the three of you, that's exactly what I created inside that relationship until I ended the relationship. 18 years, I, I have destructive tolerance. I suffer from that. And we also lived, we, we had some rough financial times and we lived in actually because for me and I read it in your book too uh, love and education is everything right I went back to work after being home 13 years and I was a dinosaur at, in the workforce and I made very little money and so we lived in 450 square feet for 13 years with a big dog <laughs> but we had what you just described we I guess we carried on to our nest and they to their nests. And so thank you for sharing that, Michelle. Amber, what about you? So it's really funny timing because my little one just started crying and I'm going to just be with him for a minute. So I will answer as I'm nursing him. Oh, um, oh that's so sweet. I hear him in the background. I know. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm just going to talk sort of quietly, but hopefully you'll hear me. It's funny because I actually grew up in Miami. Um, <gasps> what? That's my hometown. So I was really excited to know about all of the Miami connections. <gasps> I grew up in um, South Miami on Coconut Grove. Um, and uh, my mom is like generations <laughs> I mean, they've been in South Florida for a long time. And then her father came from Italy to Miami so um, and brought all of his family as well. And then my dad was like a New York Jew who moved to Miami and got a job at University of Miami. And my parents, they divorced really early on in my life. So my mom was a single mom. And my dad was, you know, maybe not as into young children as he could have been. So wasn't as present in my life. And my mom really worked her butt off, you know. So I think that was like an early influence. But always uh, very dedicated to us and to making it work. And I really saw her just working so, so, so hard to keep it all afloat and probably like had a big influence on that nest and kind of all of the iterations that made a big impact on me. We also, you know, I'm thinking Miami is such a design city and mm -hmm. I'm sure that that is um, part of why I became a design historian. But 
I wasn't like an early ambition of mine. I didn't even know that the field existed for a long, long time. And it took me a while to figure out what I wanted to be. And I still feel like I'm sort of still <laughs> figuring out what I want to be. But that was the early nest. And I feel really grateful to have grown up in Miami. It's such a majestic city. And the nature is so special and beautiful. And I feel like especially when I was a child in the 80s, it was a really much more peaceful place than it is now. <laughs> it was just like a smaller city then. Mm -hmm. And really, really special childhood. Um Full of design and nature and, um, you know, just kind of like that dreamy childhood that I think I'm trying to give to my own kids, but came really easily to children of my generation in Miami. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe you're from Miami. I love Again, it. We have so many connections here. We, we, Vani and me went to school in Coconut Grove at Carrollton for our whole, like our whole, like three oh. years old till three years old until we graduated high school till 12th grade. That was like our every day. I, I drive into Coconut Grove and I get a cry ball because no matter what, even to this <laughs> day, because it was just a part of my everyday life growing up. So that's so amazing. Yeah. And I love that you talk about Miami in a very different light than what people see right on social media. And Miami yeah. is, it can be, you know, this, you know, fun, glamorous party, this and that. But when you grow up there, especially I grew up there, obviously I was a kid in the eighties too. So it's a whole different thing when you're from there. Right. I don't know. I feel that way. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think both of my parents lived in the Grove. I mean, I think I lived on the majority of streets in like the Central Grove. And I just, yeah, knowing knowing that Miami is such a, I feel really lucky that that was my version of Miami. And it's such a disjunction from the social media um, party, kind of like, yeah, glitzy, glamorous image. <laughs> it's so different. It is, yeah. That area, uh, Amber, where you grew up, is it's beautiful. It and, and it's yeah. and what you just said. It for me, it's like the original Miami. It's like, yeah, like the the, the nest, the root, you know, from where from where it, it all it was like a big sprout after that. But uh, you know, for me, Miami's. I, I say this. I'm I'm a I'm Cuban. I was born in Cuba, and I'm a Cuban refugee. I am an American citizen. I'm proud to be American. I'm also proud to be Cuban. And for me, Miami's my country yeah. because this is where I have, I'm 65. I came when I was five and I'm lucky in a sense because it's very diverse. So it's like a little microcosm of every place else, right? Totally. I feel so lucky about that aspect too. You know, I mean, it's a truly diverse American city. And I've recently saw pictures of my elementary school class and it's just really remarkable and special how, I mean, you know, there were problems there, but yeah, what an interesting sociological education I got as a very young kid. Well, I think also like your mom and dad were both lawyers, Amber. So they were both helping make sure that folks were safe and good, right? In the city, like a lot of their work was dedicated to making sure that folks could come and have a healthy life there. 
Exactly. Yeah. My parents met at the South Florida chapter of the ACLU. So they mm. were, my dad and mom worked on cases together to help Haitian refugees um, get political amnesty in Miami. And one of my mom's pet projects, which she, I'm so proud that she wrote a lot of the legislation that made midwifery and options for choices in childbirth to be more legal in the state of Florida because midwives had been illegal. One could not choose to have a home birth well into the late 70s and early 80s. And she wrote um, some of the law. And I write about this in the book that was hugely influential to me to just be embedded in the midwife scene and people who were trying to make the world a more positive place. You see, this is why I love our, our little podcast, because it, it also, it all comes down to that little nest that we had, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but we become who we are because of that. And then when we start thinking about it, we realize, right? I think I did, right? And I think that I just realized what wonderful nest you had mm. growing up. I don't know if you if you mm -hmm. felt that way, uh, as you were telling us. And Amber, what you just said, Vanessa was born in 1979, and I had natural birth mm. uh, for both of them. Oh, my God. <laughs> She was born in Mount Sinai. And every time I had my contractions, the nurse would come, do you want some epidural? Do you want some drug? I mean, she was driving me nuts. I said, no, I want to have this baby awake. If I need it, I'll tell you. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, it was still that way Yeah, where it was, it, when Nikki was born just two years later, At another hospital, Mercy Hospital, I had a birthing room and mm -hmm. it, it was so much better. I don't know if it's because oh, two years oh. made a big difference or if it's because of the doctor or the, uh, but it was a very different experience. So that is incredible that your mom, Amber, was involved in that because I have personal knowledge that it was hard and I felt, you know, I always, um, say, oh, it must be me, you know, it must be me. Uh, mm. I wanted I wanted to have my natural birth. And these medical staff mm -hmm. just was making it really hard on me. Mm -hmm. And for a moment there, I remember, and, and I was a baby. I was 22. I was a baby. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, I was, you know, um, like an old person. This is amazing that the nests really make us who we are. At least I think so. I have a question here from Vanessa that she sent me. And she says, if you can ask them. And I said, no, go to your Latin Grammy. <laughs> We, we've made her life impossible, but I'm glad. I'm glad she's there. She can tell us about it next time. She says, I am particularly interested in cross-culturally in how motherhood and the design around motherhood is presented. You touch on that in your book quite a bit. And I guess it's part A and part B, but it says anything you learned from other cultures that you thought, wow, why don't we do it this way? Or vice versa. There's something that we really do well here in the States around designing motherhood. So I guess it's the cross culture and what you've experienced or learned. And then if they do it better anyplace else or is there anything good that we do here? Um, it's, a, it's a hard question to ask in the U.S. I think 
there are good things that happen here and we can talk about some of those because it's it's not that um, nothing good ever happens in the US but there are statistics I think a lot of people maybe know or know more more than they did a few years ago because there have been high profile celebrities and athletes like Serena Williams who have gone through pregnancy and birth and have had some ad- adverse things happen to them. But in the US, 25% or so of postpartum people go back to work 10 days after birth. Mm. We spend more per capita on healthcare than any other developed country in the world, and especially on maternal and infant care. And yet we've had um, increasing rates of maternal and infant mortality over the last 30 years. So we're throwing endless amounts of money at a system that's really broken and doesn't work. And we know that that system gets worse if you look at intersections of um, socioeconomic class or race or other elements like that. So what we did find is in other countries, they do better (laughs) with their health services, mostly because many countries have, um, many countries that are often compared to the US have uh, universal healthcare. And so they have a system where you know no pregnant person or birthing person is walking into a medical system and trying to guess at what their care is going to cost um, they also have provision and amber was just talking about home birth they also have provision for birthing choice in ways that is very difficult to find a lot of the time in the u.s one of the designs that we loved um, and we still love and we write about it. We have a chapter called Kramsorg, which is a bit of a funny name, but it's the name used in the Netherlands for the service that every postpartum person can have, usually paid for wholly by or mostly by the state, depending on your income. And it is a, a person who is specialized in postpartum care who can come, who mm-hmm. does come to your home um, in the days immediately after birth and make sure that you are healing correctly, that you are not suffering from postpartum depression, can help you if you are, can teach you things about your new baby, can can just sort of keep an eye on the family and, and say, is everything all right here? And it's sort of a no-brainer, much like having a birth advocate or a doula has been proven to dramatically reduce the amount of interventions that you need in your birthing experience. Having somebody on the other end of that experience can dramatically reduce the adverse outcomes that you can expect, um, especially one of those postpartum, uh, sorry, common postpartum complications which is postpartum depression and so yeah that's the design I think we just think why on earth couldn't it happen here Mm -hmm. I mean people have postpartum doulas but they're not taken care of um, by the state yeah we partnered with a great organization called Maternity Care Coalition, who are our thought partners for the Designing Motherhood Project. And they've been working in Philadelphia for the last 40 years to provide services like this, especially to people who would not otherwise be able to access them. So they have a great project that they've designed called the Mommobile Program, where birth advocates, lactation consultants, postpartum care goes out and meets you in your home. So I think when the larger systems fail us, again, we kind of in the US especially come back to our community and it's like making that nest a bit wider and bringing in neighbors, other family members and really amazing organizations like MCC. So, I mean, that's one I can think of, Amber, probably you, you've got other thoughts too, but that care, those systems are not so much an object, although we could think about objects, um, not so much spaces or architecture as design, but really like systems care design, the ways in which we have these support networks we find them better designed elsewhere in the than the US um, in terms of states and countries understanding that this should be a human right to have access to this uh, type of support. But in the US, people design it from a grassroots level because that's the way they have to do it. Mm-hmm. I had that experience, not myself. Uh, we have a family and my father was from Spain. 
but we have family in Spain and um, and in France, and and we saw that kind of support. Yeah, I have a cousin, Liliane, and she was a single mom, and she had twins, and she had to she had to be in bed rest. And I remember that she was able to be two months in the hospital. Yeah. And we don't have that kind of opportunity here. And this was 40 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. We had a really interesting interview. We have a chapter on the incubator. And I went to go visit mm -hmm. a designer up here in Massachusetts called Colleen Newland. She's at the Philips lab there. And Philips makes like the toothbrush that I use in the evening. It makes lots of different, different products. But Colleen is there working on the NICU of the future. And she was particularly interested in doing that because when she had her first son, who's now very healthy, probably around four years old now, he was in the NICU for just over 100 days. And she said that she had to leave him in the NICU and go back to work, A, because she needed the health insurance, and B, she wanted to save up some of her meager unpaid maternity leave so that when he actually left the hospital, she could be home with him. My son was premature, and he was in the NICU for about three weeks, and it, it was very bizarre for me to have to go home without my baby. And that really traumatized me. Um, and you, they don't let you sleep there. Um, so we could just, I would pump at home, you know, with my daughter, my daughter was full term. I was like super engorged all the time. She was on my boob. I mean, she never took a bottle, nothing. Everything was very like great in that sense. Right. And then my, I dried out actually completely, which shocked me in like two months. I was like, but I breastfed for 15 months, my daughter. And the, the doctors were like, well, stress is really bad for that kind of thing. Yeah. And um, I would have to pump at home and take it and pump at home and take it or pump there and leave it. But it's so bizarre and unnatural, right, to to do that. And, yeah. and of course, the baby has to stay there, but there's got to be a, a better way to Perfect. spend more time and connect with your newborn because that's a very important time when they first come out. In, you know, of you, <laughs> literally. That's what Colleen was saying. She was like, she's trying to figure out how in her design that it could be, she says she remembers being in the NICU, and maybe this happened with you too, Nicole, where a monitor beeper would go off and all of the parents who were by their child's bed, everyone, she says, like watching giraffes in the wild, everyone would think, is that my kid? Is, is, is yes. Everyone would go back to, you know, looking after their own kid and somebody, you know, would, would, would have the nurse run in for theirs. Um, and she said she wanted to find a way where you could have a more kind of sheltered experience that you could have a place that a parent or a caregiver could stay over, that it could be, you know, with a window. So it felt mm -hmm. like you could see the outside world because often when you're in these hospital situations, it feels like time just passes without you really understanding whether it's day or night. But just ways to make it a kinder experience, which I think it can be. And if we're throwing all this money at this situation, then it, it should be. This is very helpful for me, what, what you're saying. We're, we were talking about what I did, you know, to make a living. And so I try to incorporate the passions that I have uh, somehow there and what this conversation has helped we're actually uh, my husband and I are, are uh, writing our employee handbook hmm. and we feel that as employers as uh, small that we are why would people want to come work with us right and I, I'm thinking well because we don't believe that a human being can you know you need more than two weeks 
out of the year to take time off and that if somebody dies in your family, uh, bereavement a week, is that is that what you do? I mean, what if they're in another country? Mm-hmm. We've been able to put that into practice and uh, it has worked very well. And now what you're saying, we have a couple of young women in the group and, you know, they haven't had babies, but I would love for them to be able to come back to work and know that we'll have a, a little space somewhere where she can go and breastfeed and take her baby okay. and or or if she wants to leave her baby someplace else that she can say okay it's time for me to pump and that kind of environment is so important but yes you're right it it doesn't uh, at least uh, it's not available to people that need it, actually. Which is bizarre that that's not like just an automatic. Yeah, but that's the way it is. And, you know, I had some and the lactation specialist come to my house uh, once or twice, but it's very expensive and not everyone can do that. No. So when they told me how much it was, I was like, that's preposterous. That's I mean, there's got to be uh, uh, programs or the, the, the system has, has to absolutely change. And and we have to kind of go back in a certain way to old school ways. Like, I don't, you know what this reminds me of? Uh, what's the show that we used to watch all the time when Lily was born called The Midwife? Mom? Yeah. The Midwife. That, first of all, I love that I show love so much. I can't like I started to watch it and I could not stop watching yeah. it and I rewatched it because it's such a beautiful show yeah. and uh, on so many levels you know about motherhood about community about just being there for other women and and they used to go check on them like afterwards and as you should it's a huge thing physically emotionally hormones so many things financially that I wish that we in that sense we went kind of back to old school um, ways well I think that's what Michelle and Amber are actually highlighting in 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 talking about all these other designs or the lack of of Mm -hmm. designs we're actually getting ready to get to the end of our podcast, but I want to ask one last question because it was something that Vanna and I talked about and she said, please ask them about this. And it's, and it's about the design of the book. Mm. When she gave me this book, I wish obviously the, um, our listeners can't see it, but but go look for it. I'm sure that when they listen to our podcast, uh, this is just a teaser what we had today, and it's a beautiful book. Can you tell us how, this is what Vanessa says. Let me use her words. How did the design of the book itself come about? It is very originally designed. It is lovely. It is textured. And the pink, very much the pink of the hospital swaddle, the pink uh, line along the blue, the pink line of the pregnancy test. And she says the pink so much, you know, so much the pink. Uh, So go ahead and tell us before we have to say goodbye for now. And the girls tease me because when I feel something, I always say it. And sometimes it's not the right moment or that, but I would love for both of you at your convenience to come back Mm. uh, another day and talk about what you think we should talk about next uh, about this book, because I think it's so necessary mm. uh, for humankind right now to to be looking at this. So tell us about the book and the pink and the, the whole design. The whole design is beautiful. It's everything about it is beautiful. Behind every good book, well, 
behind some books is our great designers. We worked with two designers that I've known for a really long time. I worked with them when I was at MoMA, Natasha Chandani and Lana Carver, and they have a great design practice based between Brooklyn and Croatia, actually. Lana's Croatia. She's in Zagreb. Um, we did an exhibition at MoMA in 2016, 2017 called uh, Items is Fashion Modern, and they did the fantastic book for that. So when we were looking for a book designer, they'd always said, if you're going to do another book, let us know. Um, we had a nice working relationship. And so Amber and I chatted with them about this book, and they're just brilliant at what they do. They have such craft. They are so, so good as designers. They understood what we were trying to do. They understood we had this incredibly sort of vast archival trove of information. And we have about 300 images in the book, which are a lot to kind of deal with and, and create some coherence from. We had a lot of different types of material. We have interviews with people. We have uh, long form essays. We have essays that are much more conversational in tone. And so they made sense out of material that was really, really diverse, um, had different authors in some cases too. Making a book is a lot of math. It's a lot of hard thinking about a pagination map and how things fit together as much as it is really kind of looking at how the visual materials flow. It's about paper choices. You're right about those color choices. And they do a really beautiful thing with the typography, actually. We have four different sections um, going from reproduction to pregnancy to birth and postpartum. And you can even see it on the cover where they use GT American as the font, but they have it in different weights and different sizes or different types. And so it expands much as your body does as you become pregnant and then contracts throughout the different chapters. So yeah, you, you look at one of the chapters in the birth section, right, as you're giving birth, both literally and metaphorically there. And the typeface is really opened up and then it comes back together for the postpartum section. So yeah, anything nice and good about the book is definitely down to them. That's amazing. It's, it's an amazing book in, in, in every sense of the way and it's beautiful. Nicole, I just have to call out, you've been multitasking the whole time. You just had somebody tap you on the shoulder and be like, can you open my juice box, please? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so many things I've been asked to do in this <laughs> 50 minutes. <laughs> Oh, my. So here we are. Is there anything that, that you'd like to ask us or tell before we, we, we wrap up? It's been absolutely beautiful. Uh, um, Bani will love to hear this podcast. Um, she was very sorry that she had missed it, but we're going to be back. If you'll have us again, absolutely. Uh, we, we would love to share more on this very important subject and subjects. Yes, it's it's like we just started peeling the onion and there are many layers to this. So I would, that would be fantastic. Thank you so much. What a beautiful episode and such an important one too. Oh, thank you for having us. I think part of what we've wanted to do with this project is to make sure that we have conversations. Um, these the conversations that happen all the time, every single day have happened for decades and centuries and millennia before we've had them, but they are part of the way that we understand more about our own lives and each other's lives. And for a very long time, and even still now, we are told, especially as women, that they're not important stories, that they're not stories that are in history. They are not things that matter. 
Uh, they're not things that need to be put in a book. They're things to be hidden away or to be tidied up. And I, I think Amber and I are always really delighted to have a conversation about this because as one of our favorite poets, Adrian Rich said, if we don't speak our lives out loud and then tell each other about them, we will go insane. <laughs> and it's important not to because we need to be clear about the political project ahead of us, which is about saying that there's truth in these stories and that they should be told out loud. A hundred percent. Thank you, ladies. Thank you very, very much. We'll see you again. Yes. We'll hear you again. We'll hear- Thank you. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you so much. Thank you both. What a treat. I'll be here to cheer you on. That's a mother's duty. With all of your success, she says, all the great things are I'll be here when it's time to see you again And if you fall, she says, if someone breaks your heart I'll mend your wounds in this nest of ours till you're ready to depart